Hebrews chapter 4, if you have a Bible. Hebrews chapter 4. This is a passage, as we covered a chapter and a half last week, I told you that we would slow down this week and pause for just a moment on three specific verses. It starts in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I read an article recently uh, written by Al Mohler, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He says, while America's evangelical Christians are rightly concerned about the secular worldview's rejection of biblical Christianity, we ought to give some urgent attention to a problem much closer to home. Biblical illiteracy in the church. The scandalous problem is our own, and it's up to us to fix it. Researchers George Gallup and Jim Castelli put the problem squarely. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. How bad is it? Researchers tell us that it's worse than most could imagine. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two of the disciples. According to data from Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't name half of the Ten Commandments. No wonder people break the commandments all the time, Barna says. They don't know what they are. The bottom line, increasingly America is biblically illiterate. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in stark terms. According to 82% of Americans, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Those identified as born-again Christians did better by 1%. By the way, if, you, if I remember that data research right, uh, when they asked Americans what their 10 favorite Bible verses were, God helps those who helps themselves early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise, and a penny saved and a penny earned were all in the top 10, which of course is daring because those aren't in the Bible anywhere. That's the gospel according to poor Richard's almanac. Uh, a majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. Some of the statistics are enough to perplex even those who are aware of the problem. A Barna poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. We are indeed in big trouble. The problem I think that we can agree is something like this. There is a waning wonder for the word of God. There is very little reverence for this majestic thing which has been handed down from heaven through the prophets and apostles. We read earlier in Jeremiah 23, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces? Or from Isaiah 55, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
does our biblical illiteracy sound like we find this the book of all books? The forum by which the God of all glory pulls back the cloud of heaven and reveals his wonder and his wisdom and his majesty. We have a discernible, detectable problem. And the solution, I think, is very simple. We get passages like Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, which do us the great service of elevating the Bible back to its rightful place. But there's a big idea this morning that emerges from the passage. It's something like this. Only God's word can detect and correct the fears within our hearts. Only God's word can both detect and correct the fears within our hearts. You'll remember the situation of the story of the book of Hebrews is something like this. There are a number of believers here in the early church who have given their lives to Jesus, but they found that that road is not as easy as they once thought it might be. And they're thinking back to what they had before. Now, before, as Jewish believers, they had the temple. They could go and they could offer a sacrifice. It's something that their communities understood. It's something that their families understood, their parents. It's something that all of their friends would have gladly welcomed them into. And when they left, it must have been devastating for them. And following Jesus has not been easy. And so they're thinking about going back. And the author of Hebrews has said here in the passage that we talked about last week, the rest of chapter 3, most of chapter 4, he's given them four of these let, let us statements. Let us continue on. Let us hold fast. Let us strive. Let us strive to enter that rest. There is no rest for those who do not prove themselves faithful in the empowerment of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. He says, let us strive. Uh, I was reading in 2 Timothy, which is maybe the last letter that Paul ever wrote. And if you get near the end of that letter, you find that the way that Paul reflects on his own life of ministry, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. You know what you need to do in order to finish the fight or to complete a race? You have to strive. It's difficult by its very nature. You don't have to strive to complete a tea party. You, you don't have to strive to go to the movies and sit through the whole, well, not most of the time. But these are things that you just enjoy. The work of faith in Christ, this is hard, enduring work. You strive under the power of the Spirit to enter that rest. And so he tells us here in this passage how we can strive, how we can move forward, because we have this word. Now, sometimes I know some of you are thinking, well, are we talking about Jesus or are we talking about the Bible? Because you remember in passages like John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That sometimes when we use the phrase, the Word, we're talking about the second member of the Godhead. We're talking about Jesus Christ. But it seems as though what we have here in context is a discussion about the Word of God. So look at uh, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. There is a recorded word being handed down here. We find the same thing in chapter 3, verse 7. There is this record of what God has communicated to the people. We're talking, I think, about this physical book handed down through the generations and now to us in 2019, the word of God. And so he describes it in five ways, and that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to walk you through the five different ways that he describes the word of God. 
very quickly. Starting in verse 12, For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and finally discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He describes it first as living. Its vitality is demonstrable. Uh, we're really close to Halloween, and I know people have mixed feelings about that, but the other day I'm flipping through the channels, and the uh, old Frankenstein movie is on from 1930-something. And you remember the story, he pieces together the great monster, and it's laying there on the table, and he hooks all the wires up, and lightning strikes the top of the building, and it courses its way down. And Dr. Frankenstein looks on the monster, and its fingers start to wiggle just a little bit, and it starts to move, and he screams out. Do you know what the words are? It's alive! It's alive! This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying about this word that you have right in front of you. It's alive! In the Sermon on the Bread of Life in John chapter 6, Jesus says that his words bring life, and this is essentially what salvation is all about. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. But because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can now have new life and life abundant. This is salvation. It is new life in Christ because of the work of Christ. His words bring life. In fact, his words are living. It is living. Secondly, it's active. The word is active. It's industrious. Active could be rendered here, I think, energetic or effective. It's dynamic. It is moving. Uh, I remember uh, when I was a kid, Michael Jordan retired and decided to play baseball. His father had just died. He had just won, I think, his third uh, NBA title, and uh, he went and played here in North Carolina, didn't he? He played for the Durham Bulls. Is that right? Is there some old Carolinian that can confirm that to me? The Birmingham Bears. Sorry, I still get my southern geography confused. <laughs> he played for the Birmingham Bears and finally uh, worked his way up into the White Sox system. Now, uh, he was alive, right? But he was not active. In the season that he was out, the Chicago Bulls, who were the reigning champs, did not defend their title. And then what happened? He gave up baseball, he came back, and he won three more titles. He was alive, but not active. The word is not only living, it's active. It's actually happening right now. It's vital. It's dynamic. God simply isn't alive, hiding in the heavens, detached as a deistic force, but he's personally involved. It's working right now. It's not an ancient truth. It's an active living truth in this very present age. When you interact with this book, you're working with a book that's interacting with you. It's alive. It's active. It's dynamic. It has the power to change you. It has the power to detect precisely where all of your fears are and where all of your faithlessness is and to encourage you and embolden you in your faith in Jesus Christ. It's living and it's active. Thirdly, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. This is Machiron. This is a very famous sword in the ancient world. It's used all over the ancient Near Eastern world. It was a notoriously Roman sword. It was short. This isn't like Braveheart. Remember when William Wallace gets up and his sword is 18 feet long and he needs about 30 minutes for you to hold still so he can swing that thing around? This is a short sword. It's short and it's sharp on both sides. Short little sword. It was used for close combat, hand-to-hand, close confrontation. So if you were in the heat of battle, you couldn't swing this thing all the way around. You could just 
work it here, close quarters. Um, when Peter cuts off the ear of the priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is exactly the sword that he uses, this short little sword. It's what the Roman army used to conquer the world. This is what the author of Hebrews says about this sword. This sword could absolutely do incomparable damage to your body. But this book is sharper than that sword. Because not only can that sword take apart your body, this book can take apart your soul. It can take you down to the very smallest pieces and discern exactly what's going on with who you are and what you've done and what you need to do. It's sharper than all of those. Hopefully, you're sensing already what's happening here as we make our way through this discussion of the word. This is not some trivial book that you've been given. It is living and active, and it's so sharp that there's not a safe place on it. And it has been given to you to ascertain the status of your faith and to push you through to the very end. Go ahead and, and just for a moment turn to the book of Jude. First and second, third John, Jude and Revelation. Now, uh, we've talked about this passage a couple of weeks in a row now. And this is the great promise that we found in Jude and passages similar to this. Verse 24, only two verses left in the whole book. It's only a chapter long anyway. You remember at the beginning of the year, we took this challenge. I asked everybody, how many books of the Bible do you think you'll read this year? And uh, we didn't ask you to maybe read more than you normally would, but just to say, hey, I'm going to read one book, or I'm going to read ten books, or I'm going to read whatever. Uh, we got a couple of people I know read the Bible all the way through. That's 66 books. And then we're going to tally all that number up in January, and we put it out there in the foyer, and it was 902 books, I think was what we intended to read in 2019. And we got a little slip of paper back there, so you can fill it out and record how many books you've actually read. So we are competing against our own New Year's resolutions to see if by the end of 2019 we'll actually read what we said we were going to read. Now, I know we got a couple of kids in the congregation and they said, oh man, I know exactly how we're going to work this deal, right? I am not reading 150 chapters of Psalms. I'm not going to read Isaiah, which goes on for approximately uh, 20 million words. I'm going to read Jude. It's one chapter. And then I'm going to read 3 John, which is even shorter. And 2 John, I'm going to read it over and over again. I'm going to read a billion books, right? And so we really need you guys to buckle down and read 2 and 3 John and Jude now because we're getting really close. We're not even near 902 books. In Jude chapter 1, verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. There's a promise there. Did you catch that in verse 24? There is a promise that this life of faith that is within you is not all up to you. The author of Hebrews says that God is the author 
and the finisher of our faith. He started the story of faith in your life. And he's the one who's working in it right now. And he's the one who's going to bring it all the way through to the very end. So when we find in Hebrews chapter 4 that call to let us strive to carry on to the very end, we know that God, God is with us. God is helping us. God is empowering us. How? With his word. With his word. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Fourthly, it's piercing. It's piercing. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Its precision is absolute. Now, uh, I'm not a theologian. I went to Bible college, I went to seminary. I know enough to know that I don't know very much at all. That's the effect that formal education has had on me. I really knew a lot more before I went and did all that school, let me tell you. There's this great theological debate that has existed throughout most of the history of the church. How many parts are we? Are we dichotomous? Two parts. We have our physical part and our soul part, and those are the two parts that we are. Or are we trichotomous, three parts? We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. And so we have three parts. And how all of those work together, there are an awful lot of discussions in an awful lot of very thick books that talk about are we two parts or are we three parts? Are we dichotomous or are we trichotomous? And from right here in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we find that our trichotomous friends come in here and go, oh, yeah, here we go, we have proof. The word of God is so precise and it's so acerbic as it's sharper than any two-edged sword that it can get down to the division of soul and spirit. There we go, proof. We have three parts. Right? Now look. Here is uh, how I reckon with that here in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I don't have a clue. But it is obviously not the point. Okay? Stop making the Bible answer questions that it never asks. Okay? If God wanted you to know definitively, dichotomously or trichotomously who we are, I think we would have had a more abundant discussion than what is presented here in chapter 4, verse 12, where it is obviously not the point. Let the plain thing be the main thing, and the main thing be the plain thing. Don't chase every rabbit trail, all right? The main idea that emerges out of this is that it's piercing. It's like a surgeon wielding a scalpel. Think about that for a moment. Um, uh, when I was in high school, I, I was uh, maybe a senior in high school. I had a receding gum line on two teeth here. And so we went in uh, in the uh, orthodontist or whoever it was who did that surgery, the oral surgeon, sat me back and he gave me some stuff and he numbed my mouth. And this is how they do that. And this is really gross. So some of you have dental problems. You'll want to, you know, earmuff right now. Um, they take a patch out of the roof of your mouth and then they uh, cut away where the gums are receding and they patch it on there and new gums grow. And so I have a little bump right here on the edge of my gum line where they sewed that patch on. And so the guy goes in, and he is excessively precise. Now, uh, this is back in Springfield, Ohio, Central Ohio. It's the middle of football season. We were getting ready to play 
Iowa, and Iowa was very highly ranked, and so there was a lot of discussion on the radio about how Iowa was going to beat the Buckeyes, and so this guy who has been working for an hour with his very precise scalpel, right, finally gets that piece out of the roof of my mouth, and he's got it there on the little hook, and he's making his point, and he's going, and I just don't think the Iowa defense is going to be able to, and I'm going, don't gesticulate with that thing you just pulled out of my mouth. I need that. I don't want to do this again. Some of you may have had that done before. It's not pleasant. I remember, this is just totally off the side here. They give you a little plastic plate that goes on top of your mouth to protect that spot. And after two or three days, they tell you, take that plate out and switch for something like salt water or Listerine. Um, And uh, it was all I could do not to say unchristian things, the loudest volume I had. So instead, I just went... Now, imagine I had gone in for that surgery, and he had numbed my mouth, and he had gotten out like a chainsaw or a butcher's knife or uh, maybe one of those uh, things, you know, like the the Grim Reaper stands with, uh, one of those sighs, and oh, no, that's not what he needed. He needed a scalpel. He needed a very fine instrument able to do extremely tedious and small and precise work, and that's exactly how the author of Hebrews describes the word of God. It's not some dull cudgel. It's able to get down to the very finest points of who you are, down to the base part of you. It's scriptural surgery. It is God going in to find exactly where the fear is, exactly where the faithlessness is, and taking that out and replacing it with something newer and better and glorious. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's piercing. And then finally says here, it's discerning. It's discerning to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's not just that it can separate your body apart and your soul and your spirit. It gets to the inner parts of you, not your heart like your physical heart. It gets to your feelings, to your thoughts. It knows what's happening internal to the way that your mind works. In Psalm 139, we find this. You don't have to turn there. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in from behind and in front. You know me in all my ways. This is what the word does. How does he know you? How can he detect where to help you? He uses this book. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of bone and marrow, of soul and spirit. It's discerning, it's wisdom, it's palpable. And in reading this, we find our view of the Word of God elevated. Let me say this. What does it say about who God is? What does this passage reveal about who God is? Well, if we were sitting in a Bible class in college or seminary, we would tell you that there are five things you need to know about the Bible. There are five important facets of being a follower of Jesus Christ that you need to affirm about the Bible. First, that the Bible is authoritative. When the Word of God speaks, God speaks. When you read this book, you're reading the breathed-out words of God. It's an authoritative book. Secondly, it's inerrant. 
if God is who God is and this book is from him, we can believe this book is without error. Thirdly, we can believe in the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. It's clear. God is really, really good at revealing himself. And there may be translations that are harder to read than others, but on the whole, you can be assured of this, that now for 2,000 years, we as humanity have been reading the same book. God is very, very good at revealing himself. Thirdly, it's inspired, it's from him, and finally, it's sufficient. If you ask me what part of bibliology Hebrews chapter 4 affirms, it's this above all the others. Scripture is sufficient. If you want to know how to live the Christian life, if you want to know if you have everything you need in order to please God and grow as you strive to attain that rest, I can tell you that it is here in this book. Hebrews 4 is unswerving in its affirmation that the word of God is sufficient for you to live the life of faith that Jesus Christ intended for you. One of my favorite movies of all time is Apollo 13. There's this great scene where they have discovered they're not going to be able to land on the moon. The ship is in disarray. And their air scrubber that is internal to the ship isn't working anymore. And so they get all the nerds together at NASA and they hand them a box of stuff. And it's random parts and duct tape that they would have had available there with the astronauts on the shuttle. And they say, all right, we need to take this stuff and make a new air scrubber. This is the only way that those astronauts up there are going to be able to survive. You cannot use anything that's not in this box because they don't have it up there in space. And so you have to figure it out. And so after a couple of hours with the astronauts nearing the end of breathable air, they figure it out. Here are the plans. We've written it down step by step. They have everything they need to put together the system that will allow them to survive. We just have to walk them through the process. And this is true for you if you have the word of God. You have everything you need to live this life of faith. And it's here our author is making that argument right here from this passage. Here are all of the parts assembled under the power and guidance of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. You have what you need. The word is sufficient. Now, <clears throat> you might make an argument at some point in history that we haven't had what we needed. There was a time in the history of the Christian church where not everyone had a copy of the word. And in fact, it's one of the things that Martin Luther, as we celebrate now the 502nd anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church door, there in Wurttemberg, railing against the excesses of the Catholic Church. There was a time when most people wouldn't own a Bible. There was a time when, even if you could own a Bible, it may not be in a language that you could read. Most people went to Mass week after week 500 years ago and heard the word of God in Latin, or some variation, therefore, made up by the priests who many of them themselves did not know Latin. And the people, even if they had a copy, many of them were illiterate. This is not our situation. Do you recognize that? Do you understand the overwhelming blessings that we have been given living in 2019? We have schools where you can go and learn to read. In fact, that's why Sunday school was started. I don't know if you knew that. 200 years ago, we started having Sunday school in order to teach people how to read so they could get into the service and understand what was going on. Most of you can read, right? 
I'm not saying all of you can. There are some littles in here. There are some people who root for the University of Michigan. I understand there are people here who can't read. But the rest of us can. And there are Bibles everywhere, right? I've got a dozen of them downstairs on a shelf. I bet you have more than one for every person in your house at your home. And even if you didn't, there's this incredible invention that's just come out recently called the Internet, right? Where all of you can read hundreds of translations for how many dollars? Zero dollars. You can download an app. I have an app on my phone. I don't have to read the Bible. It reads it to me. It sends me, it's my alarm every morning. I set the alarm and it goes off and then it sends me a Bible verse, right? I start my day in the Word. It's programmed to do that. You have the tools. You have it. We've talked about this analogy before that imagine you were sick and you were dying and you live right next door to the best hospital in the world. And the greatest doctor for your malady was there and he had exactly the pill or the shot that you needed and it was all free. And he said, ah, no thanks, I'm good. <laughs> and you refused to walk next door. What a fool to reject the thing that can cure what ails you when it's readily available and it doesn't cost you anything. The word is sufficient and it is readily available and there are no excuses for Christians living in the modern world. Secondly, God has clearly revealed himself. He has clearly revealed himself and he's revealed himself by his word. He has embedded the word with the power to change our lives. It's unparalleled in its ability to lay bare the hearts of men and women. Take again a look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's interesting that word exposed. It's the same base root from where we get the word tracheotomy, right? Um, the verbal form here in its most literal sense is this idea of laying bare the throat. When you were a gladiator and you marched into the arena and you battled the person in front of you and you were able to defeat them, they would have fallen to their knees. And we find this exact term used in ancient Roman literature. You would have walked over as the victor to your victim and taken out your machiron or whatever instrument you were using and you would have held it under their chin and lifted up their chin, exposing their neck. As proof here to the entirety of the viewing audience at how thoroughly you had dominated, that they were there on the precipice of death. They were exposed. They were vulnerable. And this is how you are before the word of God. Let this book into your life and there is a vulnerability there a real vulnerability it will find out just who you are you can lie to your family you can lie to your friends you can create an entirely different person on Facebook or Instagram that doesn't actually exist in this world but before the word of God, God knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you've done. And he knows exactly how to help you get to the end, to persevere, to make it to the day of Christ. He knows. God knows. The word is able to do that. I find it 
extraordinary. <clears throat> Somebody will say to me occasionally, you know, uh, this is just a really spiritually dry time in my life. Uh, I just don't have any gas left in the tank, and I don't know what to do. Have you tried prayer? Have you tried reading your Bible? Well, no, you know, I just... We'll start there. For the hungry man, there is a feast on the table. Start there. Well, what do we do? What do we do with everything we've learned today? Let me give you three things first. Defend the word. Defend the word. We wonder why we have a culture who does not fundamentally understand human sexuality, who does not understand gender, who does not understand morality, it's because they do not understand the word. We bring them the word. We defend the word. It's not just something that happens out there in culture, it's something that happens right here. As a philosophy of ministry, I hold my most important task for service to this body to be this that I preach the word. There are any number of things that could detract from that particular agenda. And there are any number of areas in which I wish that I were better at doing them, right? So uh, there are things that I absolutely have to work on. I am not very good at getting back to voicemail messages and text messages and emails. I need to grow there. Um, I am not the most comforting person in a hospital room. I love you. I'm just bumbling in distress it's just but I work every single day to give you the best that I can from this book and so if this place is a restaurant if you want to think about it in that way you want great service you want the tablecloth to be clean you want the bathrooms to be tidy you want an appealing presentation but fundamentally food had better be good right I'm not telling you that I'm the best chef in the United States but I'm telling you I give it my best every week. Some weeks it's meatloaf, and that's okay, right? But this is primarily what we're about in this room. So about once a year, somebody will say to me, you know, I wish we just have one of the services, a praise and worship service, where we just sing, and, and, just, and it's just prayer, and it's, those are wonderful things. We incorporate all those things in our services. But we will never go a week without this book. It's like going to dinner and skipping the food this is the book. Secondly, we read the word. We read the word. Uh, you can say that you have a right bibliology. You can affirm the authority and inspiration of Scripture, but if you do not read the word, it will not do anything for you. If you have the medicine and refuse to take it, it will not heal you. If you have the doctor and refuse to visit them, they cannot do anything for you. Read the word. Or like I mentioned earlier, have the word read to you. There is an embarrassment of riches when it comes to our interaction with the word in modern times. We face not from the outside antipathy that is not matched in the inside by apathy. Read the word. If I have to get down on my knees and beg you, I will. Because it's the only thing I know that can bring you life. Thirdly, Give the word the credit that it's due. That's what this whole morning has been about. That's why we slow down to take three verses and make it a whole morning. Give the word the credit that it's due. 
you as a missionary in the sphere of influence in which God has placed you cannot change anyone's heart. Do you know that? You of your own volition cannot change how someone thinks and how someone feels, especially how they think about God. You don't have the power to do that. But you do have the word of God and the word of God can do that. Uh, again, it's Reformation Sunday. Uh, October 31st, 1517, 502 years ago, Martin Luther, who was an unknown German monk and theologian, nails his 95 thesis, his 95 criticisms of the, of the church, and starts a revolution. He, uh, many of you remember the situation in which he found himself, that there were those who were traveling not only around Germany where he ministered, but also Italy and other nations who were selling indulgences. And so if you had committed a particular sin, you could buy an indulgence, and the indulgence was going to help pay for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And if you bought this indulgence, you could get yourself out of purgatory a little bit sooner than maybe you would have all by yourself, or maybe even a family member. You could get them out of purgatory. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. This is a kind of a rough translation of what we find being preached around the time of Luther's era. And so Luther starts railing against some of these excesses in the church. Eventually he's called to a, a council, called a diet in a city called Worms. And they appeal with him greatly to recant his writings, which were fundamentally based on the idea that we are justified by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That we don't earn our salvation, but salvation is granted for us by the work of Jesus Christ. It's not about what we've done, but it's what about he's done. And in doing so, he starts a revolution, which has filtered its way out to modern times. Unless you're Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, you're a part of the Protestant church that was in part inaugurated by the work and passion of Martin Luther. Well, some years after the Diet of Worms, this is, and I can tell you precisely, March 10th, 1522, Martin Luther preaches this sermon. And he says in the sermon, explaining how it all went down, how has this revolution started? How have we done such an incredible work restoring to the people the word of God, something that they could read in their own language, something that they could own, something that they could understand, reconnecting them with how God has revealed himself directly one to one. He says, this is how it all went down, taking no credit for himself. When the word took hold of their hearts, they forsook them of their own accord, and in consequence, the thing fell of itself. Speaking of the Catholic Church. Likewise, if I had seen them holding mass, I would have preached to them and admonished them. Had they heeded my admonition, I would have won them. If not, I would nevertheless not have torn them from it by the hair or employed any force, but simply allowed the word to act and pray for them. For the word created heaven and earth and all things. The word must do this, not we poor sinners. In short, he says, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no one by force. For faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, 
The word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. Let the word do its work. I'm going to invite our musicians to go ahead and come forward. We're going to sing a song written by Martin Luther. I think most of you know this song. It's a song that the church has been singing for more than 500 years. A mighty fortress is our God. And as we're singing this song, I want you to look out for the word, word. What does he say about the word of God? Now, I know many of you are hungry, right? He's preached a long time. We've been here a while. Some of you have a lunch plan. Some of you are headed to Volmer this afternoon. I need you to take the next few minutes and sing like you're not thinking about the next thing, but reflecting here on the power and grace and the glory of the word of God.